All right, well, sometime after the day of Pentecost, Peter and John went up to the temple for the time of prayer. Let me see if you were listening last week. What time of day did they go up to the temple for the time of prayer? Does anybody remember? It was 3 p.m. It was the ninth hour. And so in Jewish reckoning, that's the evening time of prayer. As they approached the beautiful gate, they saw that man, lame from birth, and he was begging, he was asking for alms. And you remember, Peter and John, they stopped, they looked at the man, and Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so the guy had his hand out uh, for a charitable gift, and Peter just takes his hand, and he lifts him up, and as he lifts him up, suddenly his feet and ankles were made whole. They were made strong. And this guy, who was just healed, he was in shock. You know, his attitude must have been, you know, what? is going on, how can this be? He was so excited, he began to walk, he began to leap, <laughs> and he began to run around the court of the Gentiles. And so of course, we know um, that he had been begging there for years. We know he was lame from birth. We also know that he's over 40 years old. And so the people knew him. They knew that's the guy who's always sitting at the beautiful gate begging. And now all of a sudden, he's not begging, He's jumping, he's dancing, he's praising the Lord. And they're like, how can this be? And so now they all run, not walk, they're excited, they want more information, they run to Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch, again, that big, beautiful rectangular corridor with colonnades that ran along the side of the court of the Gentiles. That's where Peter and John are standing and now this guy's done dancing, he's standing there as well. Here comes the crowd. And when Peter sees this crowd, he knows, wow, God's opened another door for me, for me to share the love of Jesus. By the way, this week, you'll know when it happens, it'll be very obvious, if the Lord opens the door for you to share the love of Jesus, be obedient, put a smile on your face and share the love of Jesus. Share how he changed your life. You don't have to get through you know, the whole gospel and then try to lead that person in prayer. If God leads that way, great. But you may just wanna just plant a seed and trust the Holy Spirit to continue to do his work in that person. And so Peter sees this crowd, he knows, wow, hey, I've got another open door. And so last week, we went through Acts 3. We went through Peter's second sermon. You remember Peter's first sermon, Acts 2, day of Pentecost, and the result, 3,000 people turn to Christ and are baptized. Now Acts 3, it's his second sermon, which follows the healing of the lame man, and wow, um, Peter, once again, is as bold as ever. When he's done preaching, Peter and John begin to informally minister to the crowd. You know, every single service, every single weekend, I preach formally, and then afterwards, we have prayer partners, we have elders and pastors, and we hang out. We like to minister informally with the people. And um, I encourage you, if you need that kind of ministry, to avail yourself of that ministry. And so Peter and John are informally ministering to the people, and that's when it happens. All right, so please look at Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll pick it up. We'll pick the story up. It says, and as they, Peter and John, 
were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And so the infamous Sanhedrin, which condemned Jesus Christ to death just a few months earlier, they're at it again, they're persecuting again. This time, they arrest Peter and John. Okay, and so I know some of you are new to the Bible, um, you haven't been with us, so what was the Sanhedrin? By way of review, most of you know this, the Sanhedrin was Israel's highest court, and it was made up of the high priest and 70 men, okay? And so this Sanhedrin was based in Jerusalem, and it was divided into two groups. And so if you remember from our former studies, the two groups that made up the Sanhedrin were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You guys remember this? The Sadducees, they were the rationalists of the day, <clears throat> and the Pharisees were the legalists of the day. And so the Sadducees, um, these were the ones who denied anything supernatural. They were the rationalists. In other words, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They made it very clear, we don't believe in a resurrection. They believed that when you die, lights out, it's over. And as I've said before, that's why they were sad, you see? Okay, so don't forget that. That's the way you remember the Sadducees. And then you have the other half of, well actually less than half, the, San, the Sadducees held most of the majority seats in the Sanhedrin, but then you have the Pharisees, they're the legalists of the day. They actually believe in a resurrection. They have no problem with life after death, but here's their problem. They had the audacity to lift up their man-made rules to equal authority with God's word. What do you call that? You call that legalism. When you decide to lift up your man-made rules, whatever that might be, up to equal authority with God's word, and you try to enforce that on other people, that's, that's not a good thing. And so the Pharisees, they looked down their pious, self-righteous noses at people whenever they did not hold their traditions, did not follow their man-made rules. And as I've said before, that's why they were not fair, you see? Okay, so Sadducees, Pharisees make up the Sanhedrin. Now, question, which of these two groups persecuted Peter and John for preaching the resurrection? The group that denied the resurrection, and that's the Sadducees. Luke tells us that actually three groups came against Peter and John on this day. The first group were the priests. Anybody remember Moses and Aaron back in Exodus? Okay, and so Aaron, the priest, and his descendants made up the priestly tribe. Okay, and so the priests were the descendants of Aaron who directed the worship service and offered the sacrifices. And so if you're out there preaching, if you're a Christian and you're out there preaching, we don't need animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. 
And his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to atone for all of our sins, past, present, future. If you're out there preaching that, I can see why you would incur the wrath of the priests. You know, you're trying to put us out of business, right? And then you got the Sadducees, that's the aristocratic, wealthy, priestly class who held political power. I already mentioned they had the majority seats in the Sanhedrin. They held political power and they denied any resurrection. So if you're a Christian and you're out there preaching, Jesus rose from the dead. And not only that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in a place called heaven, afterlife. I can see where you would incur the wrath of the Sadducees. And then you have the captain of the temple, that's the head of the temple uh, police. And so, of course, the temple police guarded the vast wealth of the temple, and they kept order on the temple courts. It was kind of fascinating. Um, I just kind of uh, saw this for a little while in my, in my uh, preparation this week, and I'll, I'll talk about more later in the book of Acts. But how many of you guys remember that on the temple courts, you have the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles is the outer courts, and people, Gentiles, Jews, anybody can go on those courts. Jesus said, my house is a house, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. But then you had a barrier. And on the other side of the barrier, you had the inner courts. And there were signs written in Greek and Latin around that barrier, basically warning signs that said, if, you, if you're a foreigner, in other words, if you're ceremonially unclean and you go past this rail, this um, um, barrier right here, you do so at the risk of your own death. And so they had those signs all around that barrier separating the outer court from the inner court. And the Roman Empire gave the captain of the, of the, uh, the, captain of the temple, the head of the temple police, the authority to kill on the spot even Roman citizens who were Gentiles if they crossed that barrier. And guess what? In 1871, archaeologists were digging around the temple court, and guess what they found? A limestone rock with that warning, 2,000 years old. And right now, it's on display in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. And they not only found one, they found two. They found a fragment of another warning sign from 2,000 years ago. And that fragment warning sign is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And if we're, we have time in May, uh, we're there in Jerusalem this May, uh, maybe we'll swing by and try to see that. Okay, and so these three groups right here, the priests, the Sadducees, and the captain of the temple, they hear Peter and John sharing the good news of Jesus, but to them, it's not good news, it's bad news. And so they're upset, they're annoyed, they're in a fury, and they converge upon the apostles and they arrest them. Now, once again, what time was the hour of prayer? Three o'clock. It was one at nine, one at 10, and one at nine, one at 12, one at three. They're at three o'clock, the ninth hour. And so the man is healed at 3.05 p.m., whatever. And then Peter preaches. How long did Peter preach? I don't know, an hour, two hours? And so my point is, we're well into the day. The sun is about to set. And so there's no time 
for an official gathering of the Sanhedrin. So they arrest Peter and John, they throw them in prison, perhaps the Antonia Fortress right there, they throw them in prison overnight to stand trial the next day. All right, let's apply this to our lives. Why was all this happening? Here's why, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all, please say the word all. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, please say the word will, be persecuted. If you're living your life and everything is hunky-dory, everything's a bed of roses, everything's going right, and everybody loves you, there's a problem. There's a big problem. Because that's a promise of God, not the kind that you put on your refrigerator, I'm sure. But that's still a promise of God. All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Why were the apostles persecuted? Here's why. They were shining their light into a dark world. How many of you guys have ever been camping, right? And it's, it's the middle of the night and you get up and you're walking outside your tent and all of a sudden somebody puts a flashlight right in your eye and you're like, stop, get that light out of my eye, right? Well, Jesus said in John chapter three, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so the Sadducees love darkness more than they love light. And when Peter and John are shining the light in their eyes, they're like, get that light out of our face. And they're annoyed. And so they receive persecution. What you and I need to know that is that in our generation, in our culture, if we shine the light of God's truth, to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our families. You need to know that some people out there love darkness more than light, and you just being around them is gonna make them uncomfortable. And what you need to know and accept, right? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. You need to know and accept the fact that a friend may disown you, a family member may shun you, a neighbor may stop talking to you. A coworker may complain about you. A boyfriend or girlfriend may break up with you. And if and when that happens, here's what you need to know. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he's not going anywhere. He's got your back. He's standing with you. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Ladies and gentlemen, what we gotta come to the place in our lives is this. We need to come to the place where we realize that family and friends, they are a super abundant blessing from God. Do you agree with me? Absolutely, but at the end of the day, Christ is all we need. Amen. Jesus is all we need. I'm telling you, Jesus is all you need. And you need to let him know that. You need to let him know that you are my living water. You're a well that will never run dry. And as long as I'm dipping my bucket into you every day, I don't need all these other blessings. Now, you give them to me and I'm thankful and I'm grateful, but Jesus, you're all I need. And I wanna challenge you to go deeper in your walk, your personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that these are not just words, but that you experience what I'm talking about he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And now it says in verse four, even though Peter and John are in jail, look at what happens. 
How many, how many of you guys know that you can arrest God's people, but you can't arrest God's word? But many of those who had heard the word, good news, they believed. And the number of men, not including women and children, came to about 5,000. All right, and so in the Gospels, Jesus promised, Matthew um, 16, 18, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said that in the gospels. Now we're in the book of Acts and guess what? He's keeping his promise. And so what we see is that in Peter's first sermon, day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, the result of that gospel message is that 3,000 men and women turn from their sins to Jesus Christ and follow the Lord in baptism. And then you turn over to Acts chapter three, Peter preaches again, a second sermon, and then you read in Acts 4.4, 4, what we just read, that the number of believers in Jesus is now at 5,000 men. That's a, uh, just men, not including women and children, but when you include those women and children, a conservative estimate of the size of the church of Jerusalem right now is that 15,000 plus people. You know, megachurches always get dissed and criticized and oh, it must not be God, they must be compromising, that's why they're so big. That's not always true. This is a mega church. Sometimes churches grow because they're healthy. And so you have three months after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have 15,000 plus people following Jesus Christ And how many of you guys know the enemy is not very happy right now? And so what does the enemy do? The enemy launches an attack. He sends in the Sanhedrin to try to shut up Peter and try to shut up John. What you need to know is as we're working through our, working our way through the the, the book of Acts this year, that the book of Acts is often like a chess match. And so God moves, Satan moves. God moves again, Satan moves again. Right, the gospel is shared, people's lives are changed, people turn to Christ, they're baptized, churches are planted, and the next thing you know, here comes all this persecution to try to hinder or stop the work of God. Back and forth, back and forth, you need to know the chess match did not end in Acts 28. It continued on, and it continues to this day. And it will continue until the time that Jesus Christ comes back and finally, thank God, puts Satan in checkmate. And that's gonna be a wonderful day because when the beast and the false prophet and eventually Satan are thrown into the lake of fire, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and only righteousness will dwell throughout the universe. What a wonderful day that's gonna be. And so there's always hope. Listen, take hope. You look around the world today and it's so dark and you can so, and I can so easily become discouraged by the darkness which seems to be spreading. You need to know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I've read the end of the book and we win because Christ wins in the end. And so don't give up your hope in Jesus Christ. He wins in the end. And so right now, Peter and John are in jail overnight. They're not giving up hope. And it says now in verse five, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, 
and Caiaphas, we know who they are. We don't know much about John and Alexander and all who were part of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, when they, the Sanhedrin set them, Peter and John and the man who was healed in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Did you heal this man? Because they can't deny the fact that this guy's healed. And so here we have an official gathering of the highest court in the land. The question is, who presided over this trial? And the answer in the Bible is Annas. Okay, Annas, who was a high priest from AD 6 to 15, was actually the former high priest. Now, he's still called the high priest here, the same reason why presidents who are no longer presidents are still addressed as Mr. President. Okay, so he's actually the former high priest. He's an old man. And by the way, how many of you guys remember the marketplace on the court of the Gentiles where the Jews, the, the religious leaders were scamming the people of God? You remember all that? You know, uh, exchanging the money from foreigners into the, uh, to the, the shekel at exorbitant prices giving uh, animal sacrifices. Oh, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Here, here's ours at really high prices. What you need to know is that Annas, if he were alive today, would be a millionaire. He was a millionaire in terms of comparing our culture with his culture. In his day, he was an, a millionaire. He was like a godfather. He's the one that pulled the strings. He was the one who really had the influence. And so you have Annas, he's sitting there. And then you have Caiaphas. And by the way, how many of you guys know God loves Annas and Caiaphas? He's still giving them a second chance after they condemned his son to death. That's our merciful God. But as far as we know, they never repented and they went straight to hell. And they're still there today, which is what will happen if you reject God's love and mercy and grace. Caiaphas A.D. 18 through 36, he's the current high priest. He's Annas' son-in-law, and I'm sure he's, you know, Annas says the jump, Caiaphas says how high. You need to know that these men were Sadducees. Once again, that means that they rejected anything supernatural. They were the rationalists of the day. They were wealthy, politically ambitious, rationalists, and they lived for their own gain. And here they are, sitting pompously in their seats, and here comes Peter and John and the lame man, formerly lame man, in their midst. By what authority and by what power did you do this? In other words, we didn't give anybody any authority to be ministering out on the temple courts. And so, whose authority are you working with here? And Peter, it's time for him to speak up. And by the way, it's time for you and I to speak up and you'll know when that time is and you need to speak up. Look at verse eight. Then Peter, and I want you to say out loud the next five words, go ahead. That makes all the difference in the world right there. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed, done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed 
In other words, there's subtle sarcasm there. You know, here we are as quote unquote criminals, you're calling us criminals and we're on trial for what? Did we steal something? Did we hurt somebody? Did we kill somebody? No, we did a good deed. By the name of Jesus Christ, we healed a man. And yet here we are. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, wow, <laughs> whom God raised from the dead, Sadducees are blowing a gasket right now. <laughs> by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone, Psalm 122, 18. Look it up in your own Bible, Sanhedrin. Messianic Psalm, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so the sound of Peter's reply, have you guys ever seen or heard somebody take their fingernails and scratch a chalkboard all the way down? And the Sanhedrin members, their faces are turning red. They're like, ah, they hate this. You see, they thought they were the righteous ones and Peter was the criminal. Peter just turned the tables around and said, you're the criminals. You rejected the cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22. You crucified the Christ. They thought Peter was on trial, but actually they're the ones on trial. God's the judge. How many of you guys know that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord? How many of you know that at the end, there is gonna be a judgment day? Absolutely 1,000%. And I gotta pause right here for a little while because Peter's boldness is absolutely amazing. One of the greatest transformations that we see as we read the Bible has to do with the life of Peter. Now, I want you to think through this for me because again, we're going from um, teaching to more application now, so think through this with me. Peter has a transformed life. When you compare the way Peter acted just a few months ago, when he denied Jesus, how many times? Three times. Fearful of a little servant girl, cursing like a sailor. When you compare that Peter, three months later or so, to this Peter, you scratch your head and you think, is this the same guy? And it's the same guy. And so what in the world happened to cause this drastic change in Peter's life? If you're taking notes, here's where we get practical, two things. The cause of Peter's transformation is number one, he saw the risen Christ. He was an eyewitness, along with over 500 brethren. They saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. And how many of you guys know that one day we'll see him face to face? Not only that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, as I've already said, will make all the difference in the world, in our lives. How many of you guys know there's a difference between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit? Okay, let me, let me explain this, and I've got all the verses there if you wanna take a picture or write it down. But in Acts chapter one, verse five, Jesus told the disciples, okay, so you have the resurrected Christ, He's getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He appears and he says to his disciples, John, John the Baptist, baptized with water, 
but you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That was the promise. Sure enough, you turn to Acts chapter two, verse four, promise fulfilled. Peter, 119 disciples all together. Here comes the Holy Spirit. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down. And the next thing you know, Acts 2, 4, and they were filled, please say the word filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now they're filled. Those are the two biblical words. So I like to think of um, the, the indwelling of the Spirit as the first filling of the Holy Spirit. But then you keep reading Acts and you see in Acts 4.8, our passage today, before he addresses the Sanhedrin, it says Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you read later on, Acts 4.31, and Peter is in an upper room with a lot of disciples and they're praying and the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at Peter's life, we see that he was baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but then we see subsequent fillings of the Spirit as you follow his ministry. And so one of the guys that I've been reading for years, I read him because he's biblical, he's solid, and he's really balanced compared to a lot of the extremes that you see in the church today. And so I love Warren Wearsby. If you don't have his B series, it's a really good series to, to get. Here's what Warren Wearsby said. <clears throat> he said, there's one baptism with the Spirit, and this is at conversion. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. All right, so there's one baptism with the Spirit, and this is at conversion, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, but there must be, how many fillings? Many fillings. Everybody say the word many. many. Okay, this is gonna be the difference in some of your lives between being a defeated Christian and a victorious Christian. Right here, you got to get this principle right here if you have any hope of walking in a victorious Christian life. There's gotta be many fillings of the Spirit if the believer is to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. And so I was baptized with the Holy Spirit in May of 1984. I went to church every week of my life, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And for me, I was trying to work my way to heaven. I really thought, man, I hope I'm good enough. I hope at the end he's gonna accept me in there. But then, thank God, somebody shared some truth with me. He, and, I, and I heard that by grace you are saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I hear that um, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus chapter three, verse five, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so I stopped trusting in Mike to save Mike, and I started trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And ladies and gentlemen, when that happened, the Holy Spirit of God came inside of me. And a lot of stuff happens. A lot of stuff happened to me right then. The first thing that happened is that the Holy Spirit took me and he baptized or immersed me into the universal body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Again, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. 
And so the Spirit of God came inside of me, and I don't know how he did it, but mystically, mysteriously, powerfully, omnipotently, he took me and he immersed me with all other born-again believers all around the world, and I became a member of the Bride of Christ. And it was a wonderful thing, but he didn't stop there. No, when he came into me, he gave me his power. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power. Everybody say power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I, after that time, when the Spirit of God came inside of me and filled me, I could not shut up about Jesus. Talking about Jesus all the time. He baptized me, immersed me into the universal body of Christ. He empowered me to be a witness of Jesus Christ. But that's not all he did. How many of you guys know when the Holy Spirit comes in, he brings gifts? And so Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And I was 17, I didn't even know it, but along with the Holy Spirit, he gave me the gift of being a pastor teacher. It wouldn't come out till many years later, but he gave me that gift. Guess what? I'm no different than you. When you came to Christ, I mean genuinely came to Christ and were converted, you need to know the Holy Spirit indwelt you. But what you also need to know is that you also need to be filled with the Spirit, (coughs) excuse me, as you live your life. Ladies and gentlemen, that was 35 years ago for me. And as I look back on 35 years, I see that even though I was permanently indwelt by the Spirit in May of 1984, I've needed to be filled with the Spirit over and over and over again for the last 35 years. And if the Lord tarries and God blesses me with good health, I look forward to continuing to be filled with the Spirit for, Lord willing, the next 35 years. Why? Because I need his power to be a lifelong follower of Christ. I need his anointing, I need his his power in order to finish well. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanna finish well. Not perfectly, but I wanna finish well. I wanna get to the end of my life and take my last breath and look back and say, I was faithful to my wife. I was faithful to my kids. I was faithful to my church family. Pardon the bad English, but that ain't gonna happen if I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. So pray for your pastor. And I'll pray for you, because you not only need to be indwelt by the Spirit, you also need to be filled. Everybody say filled. Filled with the Spirit. And so Paul talked about this in Ephesians 5.18. Okay, so if you're with me, say amen. Listen, he's writing the church. Everybody say church. Of Ephesus. Okay, and so you tell me, are these people believers or unbelievers? They're believers. That means they're indwelt by the Spirit. Because Romans chapter eight says, if any man does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. Okay, and so he's writing to believers who have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them. And he says to them, don't get drunk with wine. How many of you guys know believers can be stupid? Hmm, it's really quiet in here right now. Don't get drunk with wine. Stop being dumb. 
Here's what wine will do. It'll make you out of control. Just the opposite of what God wants to do in your life because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be, here it is again, filled with the Spirit. And so in the Greek, the phrases literally continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was writing to believers who were already indwelt with the Spirit, and he says, guys, you need to continue to be filled with the Spirit. Now, obviously, he's using a figure of speech. He's using a metaphor. It's not like the Holy Spirit leaks out of us and we need more Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's a, it's a metaphor. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he comes in permanently and he dwells us permanently. It's not, this is really good. This is, the, this is worth the price of admission right here. The, 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 you, whatever it costs you to come in today, <laughs> listen to this. It's not that you need more of him. It's he wants more of you. He wants more of you. That's why you and I need to surrender every area of our life to him. That's why we say, Jesus, come on over to our house. And he comes in. It's like, you have access to every room. Not, oh, oh, Lord, don't go in there. Please don't go in there. Honey, lock that door. <laughs> no, you yield every area of your life to Christ. And as you and I surrender and yield every area of our lives to Christ, guess what? We experience more of his power and his wisdom and his love to be lifelong followers of Christ. And so Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks these guys right in the eye with no fear. And he says, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, this man stands here whole. And I, I gotta believe, I don't know if it happened or not, but right about then, the guy was standing right there, the man who was healed. I gotta believe he smiled at the Sanhedrin and waved and said, look, there's the evidence, the proof's in the pudding. By the way, they were not denying the miracle. They knew a genuine miracle had taken place. And so Peter's got one more thing to say. Here's your last verse, but please stay with me to the end. And there, verse 12 and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so if you're taking notes, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You say, how in the world can you say that? How can you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I didn't. Peter did. And more importantly, Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse six. In fact, let's all say this like we mean it out loud. You ready? Go ahead. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And guess what? If Jesus is the only way to heaven, all other ways are false. You say, isn't that narrow-minded? Yes, it is. But didn't Jesus say the way would be narrow? Look at what he said in Matthew 17. Enter through the what kind of gate? Later on in John, he says, I'm the gate of the sheep. 
Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. You don't wanna go there. And many enter it. And so I don't know why people get so bent out of shape on this one particular principle, this one particular truth, because here, here's what I know. We accept narrow-mindedness in a lot of other areas of life. <clears throat> We accept narrow-mindedness, for example, in the area of medicine. And so imagine you're in the hospital room and here comes your nurse and she's got 10 pills in her hand. And you're like, what are all those? My doctor just prescribed one pill. And she's like, oh, he's so narrow-minded. Down the hatch. Right, and you're like pressing that button. Help. We accept narrow-mindedness in the area of Medicine, we accept narrow-mindedness in the area of arithmetic. Here you are, you're a parent, your first grader comes home, he's got his little math sheet, his little quiz, and you're reading through it because it says 100% on the top, smiley face, and you're reading through it and it says two plus two equals five. And you're like, that's not right. I guess I need to go have a conference with your teacher. And so you go down to the school with the teacher and you sit down, ma'am, I know this has to be just an oversight, but, but, but look, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but everybody knows two plus two equals four. Can you imagine if she said, oh, sir, we don't wanna be narrow-minded in the area of mathematics, do we? All the children's answers are correct. By the way, that will never happen at Calvary Christian Academy, okay? Just so you know that. We accept narrow-mindedness in the area of medicine. We accept narrow-mindedness in the area of arithmetic. We accept narrow-mindedness in the area of air traffic control. Here comes your flight coming into the airport. Uh, this is flight 222 requesting a runway for landing over. Uh, this is the tower, flight 222. Uh, we don't want to be narrow-minded tonight, and so we're telling all flights, just land wherever you want tonight. <laughs> Good luck, over. <laughs> we accept narrow-mindedness in so many areas of life. But all of a sudden, when it comes to salvation, when an evangelical Christian says Jesus Christ is the only way, now all of a sudden we're narrow-minded, intolerant bigots. Give me a break. Jesus is the only way. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the only one who loved you and died on a cross for you and rose again the third day. He's the only way. And you have to accept that truth in order to be saved. Otherwise, you're on that wide road that leads to destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, Christianity says Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and rose again the third day. Islam says he's not the Son of God. He did not die for the sins of the world. At best, he's a misguided teacher. At worst, he's a false messiah. He did not rise from the dead. Islam comes along and says, Jesus Christ is not the son of God. He didn't even die on a cross. He died a natural death. He was a great prophet and like all holy men, Allah brought him to himself when he died a natural death. 
Then you got Buddhism and Buddhism comes along and says, Jesus is not the son of God. He's just an enlightened teacher. He's an avatar. I just gave you four different views about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Here's a question. It's just an honest question. Can all four views be true if they all contradict each other? Yes or no? No. <clears throat> Either Christianity is true or Islam is true or, or Judaism is true or Buddhism is true, or one of a hundred other religions is true. You got to choose. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You're not just gonna go to heaven when you die, because everybody goes there. You've got to choose. You say, I don't want any of it. You just made your choice. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. Peter said, there's salvation in none other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You have to choose. God did everything, he knows what to do, but now he's saying, repent. He's saying, believe in my son. I choose the one who came from heaven, added a human nature to his eternal divine nature, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, poured out his life's blood vicariously for me on a cross, rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He is my hero, he is Jesus, he's everything. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? If you haven't given your life to him, you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. And God loves you. He loves you and you need to turn to him. And so what you need to know, if you're here today and you know, you're like, I didn't know. I've never given my life to Jesus. You need to know all of us. We're in the same shoes that you were at one time. How many of you guys know we're all sinners saved by grace? Right? And so if you're here and you need to choose Christ, you need to give your life to Christ. I'm gonna ask you, to do something bold. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet before God and man and say, I choose Jesus, I need Jesus, I need him to forgive my sins and be my hero and be my savior. And so church family, be praying, but if you're here today and you need Jesus Christ, he loves you, he wants to forgive you, but you need to turn to him in repentance and faith. If you'd like to do that right now, if you need to come to him, some of you, you know, you, you did that, but you're not living for him and you need to rededicate your life. Whatever it, it might be, if you need Jesus, you need to come to him this morning. I'm gonna ask you to just stand to your feet right here and right now and make that public profession of faith. Amen. Awesome. Anybody else? Just stand to your feet, whoever you are. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah. Just stand and remain standing. Stand and remain standing. God bless you in the back. Awesome. Let's, hey, church family, we can do so much better than that. This takes courage, right? Just stand to your feet, whoever you are. God bless you, that's awesome. Just stay, remain standing, okay? Just remain standing. But what, here's what you're doing. You're going this way, you're living your life for whoever, what, whatever, but you're turning around because you've heard the good news and you're saying, I need Jesus. I trust him alone as my savior and Lord of my life. If that's you, you choose Jesus, stand to your feet and join these courageous people across the room today. Anybody else? Just stand to your feet. God bless you. Awesome, awesome.
Awesome. Awesome. Praise the Lord. I'm not gonna, look, look, I'm not gonna prolong this, but here's my fear, is that some of you are on the, on the road to destruction. And life's a vapor, and you don't know when the end will happen. And God is pleading with you, today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. I sense God's presence right now. He's calling people to himself. He wants to give you a new heart. Not a new religion, a new heart. So last chance, if you want Jesus, stand to your feet and confess him before God and man this morning. God bless you, awesome. 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 Beautiful. Beautiful. So church family, here, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask these people who are standing to their feet, and I really want you to cheer them as they do this. I'm gonna ask you guys to please leave your seats and come on down here uh, to the middle. And so come on down, whoever you are, let's encourage these people. And elders and pastors, come on forward. Elders and pastors, come on forward. Uh, prayer partners, come on forward to the either end too. Let's really encourage these people as they come up today. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. Now, I really admire your courage um, to do that. Um, I'm not sure if I said it in this service or another service, but what you need to know is that Jesus said, if you'll acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And so you guys, you're taking a public stand for Christ. He sees it, he's omniscient. He's confessing your name to his Father right now. And so by coming forward, what you're saying is, I'm going this way, but I'm stopping, I'm turning. I'm turning to Christ alone. He's gonna be my boss. He's gonna be my savior, the savior of my life. I acknowledge what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Church family, help them out. The wages of sin is what? Yes. Death. So the penalty of our sin, my sin, everybody's sins, is death. We deserve death. And what did Jesus do on the cross? You guys can tell me. He died. He died not for his sins. He didn't commit any sins. He died for our sins. And so you're accepting that payment and saying, come and forgive me. And so I, I don't want to, you guys to repeat a prayer after me. I want to ask you guys to bow your heads, and I want to ask you to go to the Lord in your own words, from your heart to his. And I want to ask you to pray and ask Jesus Christ to save you, forgive you, and be your Lord and Savior. And so church family, just be praying for them as they go right now to the Lord and they open their heart and receive Jesus as their Savior.